the first ten verses. First Peter chapter 2. I have a good deal of explanation to do as I get into this. It might take some time to try to help you to understand the situation that these particular believers who were Hebrew believers belonging to the Hebrew church who had believed the Hebrew message, the gospel of the kingdom. And this is often overlooked because it's not understood to be that way at all in Christendom today. But it's very necessary for us to see this, otherwise you'll never understand the epistle of uh, Peter or any one of his epistles or John's epistles or James as far as that's concerned. These books that are written by Peter, James, and John, and Jude uh, are what we might call circumcision epistles, and they have to be uh, understood and interpreted in the light of the people of Israel of whom these particular books concern. 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse 1, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. If so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming is unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. We also as living or lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. Even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also you were appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I read all ten verses because I think they all belong to each other, and they are all included in one particular context. But I don't think we'll be able to handle all ten verses this morning because they have uh, just a lot of truth. And we have to straighten things out because we have been uh, confused somewhat with the average uh, understanding that's given to us, that that has been given to us in the past by Christendom. Much of it, of course, uh, uh, was uh, according to, uh, uh, what do you call that word? Uh, according to tradition, and we find that tradition is a very st strong power in Christendom today, and it has a lot to do with the way the Bible is understood. We don't want to go according to tradition. We don't want the voice of the fathers. I don't care how saintly the fathers are. We don't want the voice of the fathers. We want the voice of God's word, and we've got to go by God's word. We have to believe in First Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, in the context in which that particular chapter is, that particular portion is written. Now we have to remember, first of all, to whom this particular book is written, and for that we go back to chapter 1 and verse 1. Now I don't care how often I labor over this because it's so necessary for all of us to see this. You look at a letter according to the address C on the, on the letter, and uh, we see that it's not written to the church, a Gentile church. Paul is not the writer, and it was given to the Apostle Paul to be the Apostle of the Gentiles, and he magnified his office. He thought a good deal about that office and he was very jealous of that office that he held 
among the Gentiles. And to him was given a gospel that was not given to the Apostle Peter. But all of this sort of thing you don't learn in Christendom today because you are told that the message that Peter had was the same message that the Apostle Paul had and all of those New Testament messengers all had the same message and that's not the truth. It's only to the eleven that the so-called Great Commission was given. And you read of that in the end of all four Gospels, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, yes, those three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew 28 and uh, Mark chapter 16 and Luke chapter 24. And you will see very clearly that the Great Commission was given to the eleven, never given to the Apostle Paul. God raised up the Apostle Paul in order to reveal to Paul a secret, and that secret contained the relationship of a new body that was to be formed by a new gospel that uh, the risen Christ was to give to the Apostle Paul, which he often called my gospel. And it was the gospel concerning the mystery which was now being revealed after Christ was raised from the dead and through this wonderful instrument, the Apostle to the Gentiles, Paul. That's why you have to go according to Paul's writings today in order to find what your circumstances are, what your circumstances will be, past, present, and future are all given to the Apostle Paul concerning the body of Christ. All right, now, it tells us in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, these strangers are those who are involved in the, the, uh, the, the dispersion that took over uh, by uh, the fact that these people were living under Roman rule, and Roman rule was very hard and very difficult on these Jews, and we'll get to understand that a little later. And uh, there were among these dispersed people, both the saved of the nation and also those who had accepted Christ uh, at Pentecost and uh, through the messages of the Apostle Peter. And therefore they are mixed, and we find that mixture very clearly given to us in James chapter 5. He writes to the same company of people, of course. There he looks at the whole nation as consisting of saved and unsaved. And we get uh, the conduct of the unsaved as opposed to the conduct of the saved in that book. But here in 1 Peter, now we are told that uh, this, this particular letter is written to the dispersed they are Hebrews, they are not Gentiles, and you should never put yourself into the reading of this unless, of course, by application, it's all right to see yourself because you see something that is true of you in this portion of Scripture, and that's in verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. If you have been born again, then you can uh, see that this is a word of uh, exhortation to you. You should... A desire the sincere milk of the word but it's not only milk that God offers us in his word he offers up us also the deep things of God uh, concerning the mystery that was revealed through the apostle Paul and therefore uh, we read of not only milk but also strong meat and milk and strong meat is the mixture that we receive today all right now I want to read now you've you've heard me say now the people to whom this particular book is written but uh, what does Christendom say about it? I've got a book here on First Peter by Mr. West, Wiest, who is the Greek teacher in Moody Bible Institute. And uh, we have a great respect for Moody Bible Institute, but you don't go to that institute to get the word rightly divided. Sad to say. But this is what Mr. Wiest says about First Peter chapter 2. He says, This scattering of these Jews referred to in First Peter took place previous to the worldwide dispersion, A.D. 70 
which latter was the judgment of God upon the apostasy of Israel. The great majority of the Jews lying outside, living outside of Palestine in the first century and before A.D. 70 were living where they were by their own choice. Now up until that time, up until that point in this word, I agree with it. Uh, the chief reason being the opportunity for business activity which the Gentile centers of population afforded. I don't believe that because that's not a good excuse for any Jew to leave the land of Palestine. God had allotted to the twelve tribes the land of Palestine. And this is only a presumption in the man's mind that it was a place that afforded better business deals and so on. And so they all, a lot of them moved out. And Mr. Abba Eben, who gave us some wonderful Jewish history on television, I think we've had four one-hour programs now uh, through him, he gives you the truth about the Jewish history and why these people left. You see, uh, they were under Roman rule. We might say they were under the heel of, of the Roman Empire. And uh, the Roman Empire, of course, did not make any room or place in their religious uh, uh, dealings uh, for the person of our Lord Jesus Christ and so when these Jews had another faith and would not uh, bow to the uh, worship and uh, the things of the religion of the Roman Empire they made it rather difficult for these Jews and these Jews had to disperse they were forced to disperse or lose their lives that's what it was all about it wasn't a matter of going into these places for better business but listen to this as he goes one line farther in his explanation. He said, there they were when the Christian missionaries contacted them. And my Christian missionaries never contacted these people who, were, uh, who had gone to these foreign countries. You know who contacted those people? At Pentecost we find a list of 15 nations that were represented by Jewish people. And all, uh, and all were only Jews. All were Jews. And they came down out of these 15 countries, and they had been there long enough to have been born there. Some of their kids were born there. They had adopted their languages and so on. And they come from these 15 particular countries in order to get to Jerusalem where they had to uh, enjoy the Feast of Pentecost. Pentecost belongs to Israel. It is not a church feast. It is not a church doing at all. It belongs to the nation of Israel. And when these 15 nations... Uh, were represented in these various Jews and they couldn't understand uh, the Jewish uh, Hebrew language at all because they had been for too many centuries, many, many decades in these foreign Gentile countries and that was the language that they knew. And that's why they were so amazed that when they got to Pentecost, God had given the gift to the various Jew Jewish witnesses of the person of Christ God had given them the gift to overcome uh, the difficulty, the language difficulty, by allowing them to have uh, knowledge of the language of these 15 countries that were represented by these people who could only understand the Gentile language, and God overcame the problem by giving the gift of tongues. That's where tongues comes in. We don't need it today. We've got schools that will teach uh, missionaries how to speak in all the languages under heaven almost. And uh, for this reason, tongues is not a gift today anymore. It was for the benefit of the Jewish people who could not understand the Hebrew language at Pentecost. And the Apostle Peter had such an important message to give to them concerning the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead that if they did not accept the truth of the resurrection, of course, there would be no coming king and God would be frustrated in his purposes to set up a kingdom in this world. Now that's what you get from Christendom. I can give you any amount of books that I have on my shelf that's written by 
very prominent clergymen, men that we love and adore and have loved and adored them for years, but they have stymied their studies by going no farther than what we call today Schofield dispensationalism. Now, I have a great deal of respect for Mr. Schofield, but Mr. Schofield, I believe if he had lived to today, he would have seen the Word of God rightly divided and he would have made changes in his Schofield Bible. Because what Schofield did back in those days when there was a beginning for the recovery of truth, what he did was to show the fundamental public or the Christian public that dispensationalism was the key to the understanding of the Scripture in order to help them to see that. He compiled the Schofield Bible, which today would be, which is radically out of date because other things have been discovered, uh, truths have been discovered, and uh, other men have been raised up by God to add revelation to revelation so that it has really outdated the Schofield Bible and Schofield, uh, 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 what do you call it, uh, dispensationalism. Is, uh, is a thing that's to be uh, set aside today because uh, he didn't have the last word on it. Well, let, let me try to explain it this way. Men like Martin Luther, C.I. Schofield, J.N. Darby, and of more recent date, J.C. O'Hare and C.R. Stam have all bravely faced the enemy in their, in their day as they set themselves to the task of recovering precious truth lost during the centuries following the very first century of Pauline Revelation. Now what would you expect of Christendom or the centuries that followed the first century when Paul had to say, as he wrote to Timothy, all they that are in Asia have left me. They have all uh, set Paul aside. That means that they had a certain amount of disdain for his ministry and Pauline doctrine was already shoved aside before the first century came to a close. And the Apostle Paul is sorrows over that condition of things and he finds that all they that were in Asia had turned their back, they had departed from the Apostle Paul. Now what do you expect of the generations that would follow? If they were going to neglect Paul and de de depart from Paul and all Paul had was for church consumption and that was the only body of believers that God was dealing with and has been dealing with ever since. Now for about 13 or 14 centuries, up until the 15th century, we find the rise of Roman Catholicism. And that rise of Roman Catholicism, I think, comes in the wake of the rejection of the Pauline message. And we find that uh, people were involved throughout the Christian world in those early centuries. They had passed through an awful period of of uh, spiritual darkness. We call them the Dark Ages. And yet out from those Dark Ages, God raised up a man by the name of Martin Luther who once again saw some truth in the book of Romans as written by the Apostle Paul. And that's why the Lutherans today are, are known as people who believe in justification by faith. Now I won't say that all Lutherans believe in justification by faith because I could uh, think of one particular habit they have, one ordinance as one ordinance especially that they believe in and they practice on their families, which is a denial of justification by faith. But uh, at least uh, Martin Luther believed in justification by faith, and he took a stand against the Roman Catholic Church, and we find that was the beginning of uh, the opening of the eyes of men and women to what was lost 13 or 14 centuries previously, and that led the church or the whole world in, in and through what we call the Dark Ages. Now, G. Campbell Morgan once said these words, and I got it out of this little booklet that uh, came in this week. 
And uh, he said this, it is not the possession of knowledge that stops progress. In other words, I can understand why people say we have to believe it this way. This is the only way to believe it because that's, that's where we get knowledge from. And that's how we have taken the Schofield Bible. I used to judge people as they come into our church as visitors. If they had a Schofield Bible, I would say they were sound. If they didn't have a Schofield Bible, I wouldn't know just where they stood. Because the Schofield Bible, to me, represented soundness. But I've gotten away from that. I am no longer a Schofield dispensationalist because I believe that God has given us something far greater than where He could take us. He took us into a wonderful place. But we get an idea that if we imbibe in all of that knowledge, that's the end of progress, that's the final word, and we have to judge everybody like I was prone to do according to their knowledge of the Schofield dispensationalism. And that's the wrong thing to do. Now he says, G. Campbell Morgan says this, It is not the possession of knowledge that stops progress. The mischief is done by the assumption that the knowledge is final. And when we take any man's writings as final, then we've made a big mistake. And we cannot take anything as final. We don't know what God is still going to reveal from his word before the church is raptured up to meet the Lord in the air. That's why we have to study to show, make ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So Brother C.I. Schofield, and this is my thought, never intended that people become Schofield dispensationalists. His work was but a beginning, not an end of research and discovery. And you have to remember that. So don't look at that Schofield Bible as being the final word from God. The only thing you can depend upon in the Schofield Bible is the, is the text. The text which is uh, the word of God. And everything else represents man's thoughts about the matter. Now there are two reasons for referring to these particular Jews as Christian Jews. And that's what this man does as he goes through his book on Peter. He looks at them as Christian Jews. He said there they were in these Gentile countries until Christian missionaries passed, passed by with a Christian message. That's not true at all. That, that's contrary to, to the word of God. And we ought to know that. So I'm going to say this. There are two reasons for referring to these Jews as Christian Jews. Which statement should be used and always qualified when used? When you say Christian Jews. Every once in a while you read an article in the paper in, in some uh, Christian magazine. Or read a book on theology concerning the early Hebrew believers of the church age as they call it. And we find that they are always taught, said to be Christian Jews. I don't like to call them Christian Jews. I believe that they are Hebrews who believe the message concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, but they did not believe the message concerning which was given to the Apostle Paul, what we call the Christian message. And we have to be careful how we use that word Christian. Today when we say this person is a Christian, or we say the Hebrews were Christians back at Pentecost, the Hebrew believers were Christians, then we link it up right away with the fact that they along with us have listened to the same Christian message. And is that true? Not at all. And so we find that we uh, uh, want to give these two reasons for referring to these Jews as Christian Jews. First of all, we make them to be the recipients of a Christian message by Christian missionaries. You see that in this book. 
He says Christian missionaries came their way. And the only men that came their way were the apostles of the circumcision. It was Peter that preached a message to them. It was not the Christian message. It was a message of the kingdom. For there is no Christian message involved in the Great Commission. Or, but the gospel of kingdom is there. So we have made them to be the recipients of a Christian message by Christian missionaries. Now this is due to the persistent error of the traditionalists that the Christian body, church, is the same church mentioned in Matthew 16, 18. Now in Matthew 16, 18, we find the Lord Jesus Christ got a, extracted from the Apostle Peter a testimony concerning who he was. And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the Apostle Peter was told then on this rock, on that confession of Christ, of who the Christ is, uh, on that uh, confession, he would build his church. On, uh, and uh, we find that that church is the Hebrew church. The Lord Jesus Christ was not uh, revealing anything about the uh, Christian church as we know the Christian church as it began with the Apostle Paul. And while there was a church added to in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4, it was the Hebrew church that was added to because it was already in existence in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ because he said when two men have any difficulty with each other and they don't agree, he says, take it to the church. And so there was the existence of a church in that day. Now a church is simply an assembly of people. We find that can be a Christian assembly, it can be a Jewish assembly, it can be a political assembly, but the word for church, ecclesia, is used in any event. And we find that it simply means a gathering together. Now you know the people of Israel where it was a church. We find that in the book of Acts chapter 7, the apostle, uh, or rather Stephen, uh, while he was in the process of being stoned, he spoke about the church in the wilderness. Well, you know what church that was. It was a gathering out of the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by way of the blood of redemption, and brought into the wilderness. And they've been a church ever since they were gathered out of the land of uh, Egypt. Now, a second reason why we find that uh, why these particular Jews are called Christian Jews is this. Another reason for referring to these Jews as Christian Jews is that the word Christian is mentioned by Peter in chapter 4, verse 16. Have you noticed that? Chapter 4, verse 16. I've had a lot of difficulty with this, but I especially studied this out this week because it says very clearly, chapter 4, and verse 16 of 1 Peter, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now I can see all the traditionalists say, See, I told you. The church started at Pentecost, and they were all Christians. They were not all Christians. Now, there's a reason why the Apostle Peter called these Jewish believers in the Messianic Christ Christian. And we want to know what that particular reason is. Just why does Peter call them Christians? I don't like to call them Christians unless I qualify my statement. And uh, that, in, in a sense, I can say this, in a way, I can call them Christians. But it only confuses what Christianity is unless we make it understood what we mean by the word Christian. Just why does Peter call them Christians? Was it because they had received a Christian message? Or was there another reason for it? Well, first of all, they had not received a Christian message. They received a kingdom message. So there has to be another reason why the Apostle Peter calls these Hebrew believers Christians. 
Now, when Christ was first preached, it was uh, by Peter at uh, Pentecost. What was the subject of the Apostle Peter? The subject was Christ. Remember that now. What is the subject of the Apostle Paul? It is Christ. Is Paul's purpose the same purpose as Peter's in preaching Christ? No. The one was to set up a kingdom in this world. And Christ was to be that king. The other was to raise up a body for Christ and, uh, as the resurrected uh, Savior. And uh, we, uh, the whole purpose is to uh, create a body for the Lord Jesus Christ that was going to be a heavenly body whose citizenship was to be in heaven. So we find two callings but both based upon the preaching of Christ. Alright, now Israel was then under the heel of the Roman oppressor. Now you have to remember that. And this was going on for some centuries. That uh, they were under uh, Roman rule. Now under that regime, they were exposed to what we call the cult of the Caesars. Where the emperor was the god to be worshipped. Now maybe you don't know that about Rome. But we find that the emperor was the god and he was the one to be worshipped in Rome. Now, when you've got a bunch of Jews under Roman control, you find a lot of people there who are not going to be controlled by the cult of the Caesars because they have belief in God and there's going to be a certain amount of rebellion. And this rebellion brought an awful lot of persecution to the Hebrews and for this reason, not for the reason of business, but for the reason of persecution, they, were, they ran into other countries, Gentile countries, and there they stayed for several generations, even uh, producing children and uh, generations of them. And they knew not the, Roman, uh, the Hebrew language, as we mentioned a while ago. Now, under this regime, they were exposed to the cult of Caesars. But on the other hand, we find that Rome was exposed to the danger of being challenged as king by the preaching of another king, Messiah. And we find that the message of the Apostle Peter was very clear in Acts chapter 2 to these Jews at Palestine in Jerusalem under German rule, uh, German, under uh, the Roman rule. And we find that uh, as far as uh, he was concerned, he said very clearly in Acts chapter 2 that Christ was raised to sit on David's throne. Not for our justification, that's, Rome's, uh, that's Paul's message. But as far as Peter was concerned, he was producing a king. And in Acts chapter 2 verses 19, 20, and 21, we find that a king was being offered to the people, or Acts chapter 3 rather, 19, 20, and 21, uh, Christ was being offered as king. Well, what did that mean? It meant that the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of the emperors was being jeopardized, was being threatened. And the Romans are not going to take too kindly to that sort of thing. Imagine having a bunch of fifth columnists in this country and they're talking about Hitler and the fact that Hitler might come back alive sometime and he's really going to rule with power in, the, in this country, we might call them fifth columnists, and we're not going to put up with a thing like that. Rome would not put up with it, and therefore great persecutions came in the wake of Peter's preaching and other preaching by the other apostles, the other eleven. Now, the Greek word for Caesar was Kaiser, K-A-I-S-A-R, and his worshippers were called Kaiserianos. And that's what they recall, and all the Roman people and whatever Jews there might be who succumbed to the worship or the cult of the Caesars were called Kaiserianos. Now, the worshippers of the Christ were called Christianos, 
And there was a difference between the two. You either had the one label or the other label. And of course, the, the more Christian accepted word for Christianos is simply Christians. In other words, there was a reason why those Jews could be called Christians because they worshipped Christ. They had Christ presented to them, that he was presented to them as king. He would be the one who would come back and bring the people of Israel back into their land, and he would be king among them. That jeopardized uh, the, and threatened the Roman Empire. And therefore you can see why the empire was divided between those who were worshippers of the emperor and those who were worshippers of the Christ. But remember, no Christian message at all. This is not the Christian message as we think of the Christian message. The Christian message is one of justification by faith. It is one of reconciliation uh, for enemies of God. And it is one of imputed righteousness, which the Apostle Peter never preached. All he preached was the fact, you have taken the Lord of life and glory, you have crucified him, and for this reason God has raised him from the dead and is now presenting him to you, and will send him forth as your king, if you are willing to accept him as the resurrected one, and as God's king, the Messiah king. And you can imagine how well this was accepted by the Romans. So, actually then, the preaching of the Christ by Peter produced a group of believers of an earthly calling, who were Christians, not because they heard a Christian message by Christian missionaries, but because they heard a kingdom message of a risen Christ. You see, the same name is in both, in the same word, uh, Christ for Christians. All right, now, through Paul, the Gentiles heard the Christian message of grace. A message producing members of a new body of believers, the church, the body of Christ. The traditionalists have taken Peter's use of the word Christian in chapter 4 verse 16 of 1 Peter and accepted it as proof that the church composed of Jew and Gentile began at Pentecost. You see the confusion that's in the world today? I hope you can see the confusion in this book. The Bible doesn't say that their paths were crossed by Christian missionaries. It doesn't say that they went into these foreign lands because business was better for them than in Palestine. They knew better than to get out of Palestine. Because if they, business was bad in Palestine, it was because they were disobedient and the blessing of God was not upon them as they lived in that land. And it was for them to repent and change their minds about some things. So we find that this confusion goes on and on and on. Now when you look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 2, we don't have very much more time to go. Well, we only went 30 minutes. When you look at chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby. Now I believe that it's in the minds of many a fundamentalist today that since a reference is made here to the new birth that they had to be Christians, that is, believers of a Christian message that's as Paul would preach. But that's not so. You get the born again and the effects of a new birth in John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. For in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ people were born again. The Lord Jesus Christ said before he ever died on the cross, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John chapter 3 and verse 3. So the new birth was a reality in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when the Bible mentions a new birth or the fact that people have been born again, it does not mean that they have become the believers of a Christian message. It could be the message of Christ as king, not as Christ as head. And Christ is the king to the nation of Israel, not to the church. But he is the head to the church and not to the nation of Israel. I hope you get that distinction because that's necessary. And we find here now that these people were born again. He told them that now they have the opportunity, as it were, uh, to freely exercise the various characteristics of this supernatural birth, as opposed to the sins enumerated in verse 1. They were not to continue as they were before they were born again. Before they were born again, we find that they had malice and guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speaking. And uh, the way they mistreated when the unsaved Jews in these uh, places, uh, these Gentile countries into which they fled, the way they treated the Jewish believer among them was a shame. May I remind you again of James chapter 5 at verse uh, 1. Please, James chapter 5. James, remember, is writing to the same group. It is not a church epistle. And you have to interpret before you uh, give, you, give anything out practical uh, for the church, the body of Christ. You first have to look at it and give the proper interpretation. And the interpretation of James and Peter belongs to the Hebrew believers in Christ as King. Now in chapter 5 verse 1 it says, Go to now ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered and the rust of them shall be a witness against you and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Now that title of the Lord there is for Hebrew consumption only. It's not for the body of Christ. But if you look over those five verses, you see how poor the lives were of those who would not accept Christ as the risen Messiah for the nation of Israel. There they were living in the midst of a few people, a minority group, the remnant who had believed Peter's message. And this is the way the unbeliever treated the believers among themselves. James chapter 5, the first five verses. Now we find that some of these who were born again or looked at as being born again in verse 2 of 1 Peter chapter 2, we find that they once did what is said about other members of the Jewish race in these uh, Gentile countries in James chapter 5 and now they were free set free as it were no longer to practice this kind of sin among themselves as Jews but now they were set free as it were to uh, exercise the characteristics of this supernatural life which they had received from God making them new creatures in Christ and it, so there you have something for us. There you can say, this is for me too. That is, we've already had the, uh, the interpretation of it, but now we can see the practical side of it. Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and evil speakings. Isn't there a lot of that among believers in Christ today? The church is full of these particular sins listed in verse 1. And here the Apostle Peter gives us the truth that having been born again, we have the power 
and the spiritual initiative to set aside that kind of living so that we might live holy lives unto the Lord. And so we find that our conduct changes as well as their conduct. A new birth in the life of a Hebrew believer in Christ as King is going to work effectually just as it does work in the life of a Gentile believer in Christ as the head of the church, the body of Christ. And then when you go on to verse 3, it says there, If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. In other words, the very grace that characterized the Messiah as presented to the Jewish people who had so recently crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, the very grace that uh, was being offered to them, giving them a new start, as it were, if they would only believe the message of the Apostle Peter, if they recognized that it was a gracious message given to them, now why couldn't they live graciously among themselves as fellow Hebrews? And that's true with us too. So the very grace that characterized the Messiah was to characterize the grace of daily living for us. We should be gracious because we have been dealt graciously. Our grace has been of, of, of a different order, we might say. God's grace to Israel was never a dispensation of grace. We are in a dispensation of grace. When God was gracious to Israel, even back at Pentecost, there was no message for the Gentile world at all. Not until Paul comes on the scene in chapter 9. That's 10 years after Pentecost. No Christian message for Gentiles until Paul came on the scene. You know, the, Christian, the message, rather, that came through Peter to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, was not a Christian message. It was the gospel of the kingdom, giving us a little picture of, of what it was going to be when, after the Jewish uh, people would bow the knee and accept Christ as their king, then they were to become witnesses of a risen Christ king, or King Christ, and they were to become his witnesses to disciple all nations just as the Great Commission uh, called for. And then when you look at verse 4, it says, To whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. In other words, we find that the one to whom they had approached and received salvation, the one to whom they daily approached in order to continue to receive his grace and blessings from them, were to Israel a veritable living stone. Now, no one has ever seen a living stone, but God says that this is what his son is all about. He is Israel's living stone. He forms a solid foundation for the coming kingdom and for the national uh, revival in a coming day. And so we find that he is their living stone. While to the unbelieving, he is what you read in verse 8. Look at verse 8. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word, being disobedient whereunto they also were appointed. Now the people of Israel stumble at the word many, many times. Under law they stumble at the law because they thought that the law was given to them as a means of obtaining personal righteousness. When the law was given to them in order to show them that they were just as sinful and wicked, that they were made of the same stuff, so to speak, as the Gentile nations around about them. But they mistook that and they sought to work out their own personal righteousness according to Romans chapter 10 and verse 4. And so here we find in verse 8, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to them who stumble at the word. And there were many Jews who stumble at the word. This is a prophecy in the Bible. The Bible said that the people of Israel, many of them, 
would stumble at that stumbling stone. So Christ was a living stone to those who believed, but He was also a stumbling stone to those who would not believe. And there are going to be millions of people who will stumble into hell over the preaching of Christ as Savior today. Think of all of the people that's dying around us. I don't know how many people die in average per day and throughout the world today, but how many of them haven't heard the gospel of God's grace and they did not accept that gospel and the very last breath of their life is nothing else but a stumbling over that stone that could have been to them a rock foundation for salvation that has become a stumbling stone to stumble into hell and the blackness of darkness for all eternity. We have a wonderful Savior and God wants to warn us in advance. And this is about as far as I have time for this morning. But He wants to warn us in advance that we have a wonderful Savior, that God's promises for eternal life and salvation are as good today as they have ever been. And God would have us to uh, consider our way. And if you have had the opportunity of accepting Christ as Savior, now this has nothing to do with church membership. This has nothing to do with baptism. This has nothing to do with doing good because there is none that doeth good, no, not one. This has to do with, with what Christ has done, with what He has obtained for us. And that which He has obtained for us is now offered to us as a gift. For the gift of life is, of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I hope this has helped you to understand the word Christian in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 16. They believed in Christ, but not in Christ as the head, not in Christ as the giver of righteousness, not in the, in the Christ, uh, the justifier of, uh, of believing men and women, but in the Christ of God to be the King of Israel. And that's what, they were, that's what their hopes were all about, to look forward to the time when He would return. Now, He has not yet returned, but He will. But first he's going to take us to be with himself. The church will be called up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air. And then that dispensation of the kingdom will start all over again. Where it left off in the book of Acts, it will start over again. The people of Israel will be made to go through the great tribulation. And then the Lord of life and glory will return, the resurrected Christ, the Messiah. And then the nation of Israel is going to be regathered out of all the Gentile nations into which today they are scattered. They will be gathered again and the Lord will reign among them. What a wonderful day. So Christ is Christ in two ways. To the Gentile, he's the head of the body of the church. To the Jew, the Hebrew, not today, but to the Hebrew who was given that opportunity at Pentecost, he was their coming king. Now, God only has one Christ today. Jew and Gentile are both treated alike. Remember that. Since God turned His back upon Israel, it's up to the Jew now to take the sinner's place, to take the place of a sinful, alienated Gentile, we might say. And both can come to God through Christ today on the same platform of justification by faith. So if you have not as yet accepted Christ, why don't you do it before it's eternally too late? May the Lord bless His word to us this morning. New Testament that need to be rightly divided. It's these particular letters that are written to these Jewish believers in the Messiahship and Kingship of our Lord Jesus Christ as preached to them by the Apostle Peter. And we explain this morning why, and we'll get to it again when we get to 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 16, why these Hebrew believers 
we're called Christians by the Apostle Peter because it's not for the same reason that you and I are called Christians today. today. If we refer to a Jew today as being a Christian, we mean that he has become a believer in the message of Christianity or the Christian message as received by the Apostle Paul and given to us ultimately by way of his letters to us. But these Hebrew believers are called Christians because they too were followers of Christ, but not for the same purpose. Christ was preached to them as their coming king, and he would come as king to them if the people of Israel would repent and be baptized, that is, water baptized, and receive the remission of sins. If there was a complete national turnabout, uh, we find that the Lord promised, or God promised, that he would send his son to be king to them as written in Acts chapter 3 and offered by the Apostle Paul there. Now here we have a chapter in the first ten verses which we read this morning of chapter 2. We have a portion of scripture concerning priesthood. And we have this matter of priesthood confused in Christendom today because I read to you a little bit this morning from one writer who represents uh, Christendom. He was a uh, Greek teacher in Moody Bible Institute, and we see how quickly they put in their thoughts about Pentecost being the birthday of the church, and therefore those Hebrew believers that were saved at Pentecost time were Christians because they think that they had heard a Christian message which is uh, not according to God's revelation, whatever. And then as we get into verses 9 and 10, we are going to see that this so-called priesthood of believers that we are supposed to enjoy or we are supposed to be today and exercise ourselves in, we find that uh, it doesn't include us at all. It's only for the Hebrew people who were a prototype of the coming kingdom when all the people of Israel would be priests in that day. And that we have in in the book of Isaiah chapter 60 when it tells us that all Israel will be preached in that coming day. So let's not get it into our bonnet again that there is such a thing as a priesthood of all believers. I wish after I'm through with this you would read the footnote in Schofield Bible then you would understand what I mean about what Schofield dispensationalism is. And I said this morning I don't think that the... C.I. Schofield ever intended that we should be Schofield dispensationalists because I think the objective he always had before him was the exaltation of the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And at the time that he edited such a Bible, which goes back perhaps 75 or 80 years, and we find that there has been a good deal more recovery of truths that have been lost in the first 13, 14 centuries, And we find that the church went through the dark ages. They did not believe in the uh, blessed hope. They did not believe in the millennial reign of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that reflected in Christendom today. The Christian Reformed don't believe in a coming millennial reign. We find General Baptists don't believe in eternal security of the believer. I'm just mentioning one or two things. And there's such confusion all around about us, but you will find that they all are agreed on one thing, and that is today we preach the gospel of the kingdom according to uh, the uh, Great Commission, so-called, that Pentecost is the birthday of the church, and that the Apostle Peter preached the same message that the Apostle Paul did, and this is all wrong. And that's why you see them all one as far as those three points are concerned. They all agree on those three points, and that's what makes them And that's what makes them a rainbow coalition in Christendom today. They all agree on those things and they all uh, hold out their arms to each other 
And yet they always retain an arm's length relationship with each other because we find that the children of one pastor will not allow his children to be under the ministry of that other pastor, although he's part of the Rainbow Coalition and he believes in the basic three things that has brought so much confusion in the world today. So don't be afraid to read that footnote in, in 1 Peter chapter 2. It's going to be contrary to what I say, but remember, my word is just as good as Schofield's. And Schofield never intended that you and I should be followers of him, but followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe the purpose of the Schofield Bible was to get into the minds of the reading public and of the fundamental public in Christendom the key to the understanding of Scripture, which basically was that the word is to be rightly divided according to dispensations, but he didn't have the full knowledge of dispensational truth, and especially the fact that the dispensation of grace did not begin at Pentecost, which he and all the rest of them uh, founded all of their truths on at that particular time. So we expect that God will reveal revelations to us, and nothing is final in this world today. I am not giving you the final word on anything. When we get to the place where we think that we are giving the grand finale on any particular truth, we are mistaken because then we claim that we know as much as God knows about the teaching and we are not keeping ourselves open for a change of mind, which would be a good idea of all of the people exercised in Christendom today, just to change their mind. Let's look at verse 5 to begin with. We looked at the uh, first four verses this morning. Now let's begin at verse 5 of chapter 2. Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now the reason why I want to link up verses 6 and 7 to it is because you have the quotation from prophecy. So whatever is revealed in verse 5 is the, has the background of prophecy. Now please remember that what you and I have through the Apostle Paul's teaching what we have as connected with the mystery and with the body of Christ, members of that body, we don't have because it's been prophesied in the Old Testament, but because it's a new revelation given by the ascended Christ to the Apostle Paul. Things that have never been revealed before. That's why this dispensation is a mystery dispensation, a revelation of a secret. A secret that God had in his own mind and in his own heart from before the foundation of the world. That in the event the people of Israel would not accept the message that Peter gave to them, a message of amnesty, in fact, we find then that God would turn his back upon the nation of Israel, but not on the world as such, but he would turn his face toward us in grace, and that would open up a dispensation of grace. And that's what we have today. That's where our dispensationalists fail to see the truth of dispensationalism. Even those who have tried to give us, like Schofield has, a Bible that would put us on the right track, which is... We have to divide history and the future up into various dispensations so we know where we stand when we read the Bible. However, as soon as you put the dispensation of grace at the end of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, you get into trouble because Israel had to have a public stand made uh, to them in the revelation of the Apostle Peter and his revelation of the resurrection of Christ from the dead and God's willingness and God's promise to send back his son if the people of Israel would repent. Now in verse 5 it says, You also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. 
Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, and here's another quotation, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same as made the head of the corner. And another, a little bit of a... Uh, uh, an Old Testament prophecy in verse 8 and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So there you have three portions of the pro prophecy of Old Testament times to support the fact that verse 5 is offering to the people of Israel or God sees them to be just a little prototype of what Israel be when in the coming day when the Lord Jesus Christ will be ruling and reigning among them. And that will be that they will be a kingdom of priests and they will be the access unto God by the various nations who do not have that access in that day. Now when you look into your Schofield footnotes, you will find that we today, the church, the body of Christ, are, a, are the priesthood of believers. And that's not according to the word. God is not addressing himself to the body of Christ in chapter 2. That's the big mistake we have in Christendom today. And I think it's under that fourth part after that expression in the Schofield Bible that it says that the chief purpose of a priesthood is to create or to give access unto God. That is not a truth. All the Old Testament people of Israel, of course, had access to God by way of the Levitical priesthood because they refused to be a kingdom of priests as offered to them in chapter 19 and verse 6, verses 5 and 6 of the book of Exodus. But here we find that when we get into Ephesians chapter 2, you will see that we all have an equal access, Jew or Gentile today, male or female, because of the blood of the cross. It is through the shedding of, of the blood that we have access to God. You don't need me to pray for you. And no one has to have me to give, to create an access either in worship or in intercessory prayer. You have enough in yourself, not because you are a priest, but because you are under the blood. Because the blood has provided that particular access. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, please. And while you're at the book of Ephesians, I want you to look at something else. Because here we find in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2, a building spoken of. And it almost sounds like Paul is talking about the same building, but that's not the case at all. Let's look at Ephesians. I trust I can find this quickly uh, this evening. Ephesians chapter 2. It says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus ye who sometimes were afar off were made nigh by the priesthood of believers, not at all, but by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man. Now notice it's not one new woman, so the church is not the, the bride of Christ. So making peace. And that he might reconcile both, that Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off unto them that were nigh, that's Jews and Gentiles and Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile today, in this dispensation of grace, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. The priesthood is not provided for an access unto God. Remember that we are not a priest. We thank God that God has a high priest at the Father's right hand. He ever lives, lives to make intercession for us. But you come to God as a qualified worshiper. You qualify to pray. You qualify to intercede. You qualify to worship. And it's all up to us to accept that qualification and do these things 
that uh, are what we might call the spiritual worship that scripture talks about in Romans chapters, uh, chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2. And then when you go back to Ephesians, I want you to see the last few verses of chapter 2. And I want, I've got on my, on my mind, of course, what we read in verse 5 of 1 Peter chapter 2. So I'll read 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5, and then I'll go back to uh, Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 19. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 5 says, Ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now there is something that sounds like it, but I've told you many times that there are many things that we have like the people of Israel have. Only ours is related to a holy calling, and theirs is related to an earthly calling. So there are many things that we share alike, it seems, and there are some occupations of ours that seem to be alike, but it's connected with another calling other than that which sounds alike with the people of Israel Whose, uh, uh, whose blessings and uh, responsibilities are connected with an earthly calling. It says in verse 19, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now those apostles and prophets are not Old Testament prophets or Old Testament apostles or even the apostles of the circumcision. They are... The Apostle Paul and Timothy and Titus and the rest of those who were also given the word of prophecy and the gift of prophecy. And then it says, In whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now don't think for one moment that that description is exactly the same description of what the, what the Apostle Peter says about these Hebrew believers in verse 5 of chapter 2 of 1 Peter. It's not the same at all. The Apostle Paul never mentions that we are a spiritual house of, pre of a priesthood. Priesthood is never once mentioned by the Apostle Paul because we are not related to a priesthood. And what a shame it would be if God forgot to tell the Apostle Paul that we are a priesthood and he neglected to put it in the scriptures in order to tell us that that's what we are. And here we have Christendom confused over this particular issue and we find that we are calling ourselves priests. You don't have to be a priest. If anybody asks you to pray for them, it's because they realize that their own weakness and they know not what to pray for as they ought and they want the fellowship of another believer concerning those things that they have need of, which might be physical needs and there might be other types of needs. But uh, it's nice to be able to sit down and pray with people, but it's not to give them an access before God. But we find that in the coming day, the people of Israel will all be priests because then the Gentiles who will never have the nearness that the Jews will have in the millennium that they might be able to bring their worship and find God to accept their worship because it's given to the priests and the priests offer it to God. And therefore they make the possible the acceptability of Gentile offerings and sacrifices in that coming day. So you can see we are not a priesthood. And that's a very important thing because we have all over this fundamental world of ours, your Bible schools and, and uh, your seminaries and everything else telling you 
that you are a kingdom of priests. Well, there's something wrong somewhere. There's a basic teaching that's lacking in those who try to teach that. First of all, they are looking at 1 Peter chapter 2 as though it's part of a five-chapter epistle that's written to the church. This is not written to the church. This is written to Hebrew believers who listen to a kingdom message. And the messenger was the apostle Peter and the time was at Pentecost. And there was no dispensation of grace then. There was no gospel of grace. And we find that they, however, were born again because they believed the word of the gospel. And uh, because they were born again, I'm afraid that uh, Christendom has put these people into a Christian frame of mind, into a Christian type of theology, and they call these people Christians. They were not Christians in the sense that they had heard a Christian message. They are Christians in the sense of this, that Christ had been preached to them as king. And wherever Christ is preached, whether it's to the Jews with a kingdom in the future or whether it's to the Gentiles with a hope in the glory for the future, they are both followers of Christ. And so they are both called Christianos by the Romans. And uh, that's one reason why Paul, uh, Peter mentions once in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, that these Jews were Christians. Not because they were recipients of a Christian message. Now it might be that I'll have to say this all over again when I get to 1 Peter 4.16. But that won't bother me. I hope it won't bother you. But I think it's something we've got to get into our mind. For a long time I wonder why does Peter call them Christians? I never want to call those Hebrew believers Christians because today if we mention the word Christian we mean basically that they had heard a Christian message and they had never heard a Christian message. The man that we quoted this morning, Mr. Weiss, do you remember what he said? That they came into contact there in those foreign Gentile countries with Christian missionaries. That's nothing but the figment of imagination. There isn't anything to prove such a thing. And then they go around and try to tell what the Greek all means with all of that false thing for a background. Now they did it in ignorance. I grant you that. And I'm quite sure Mr. Weiss, who is in glory today, I think he is, he, he passed away, didn't he, Ted? Yeah, I'm quite sure he might uh, know the difference where he is right now because uh, that's going to be a real spiritual university throughout all eternity. And that's where it will be straightened out too with a lot of things that we have not yet come to a good solid basis on. There are a lot of things that you and I are going to have revealed in the coming day that we have never known, that we're not capable of knowing, that we don't have the minds to enter into after a spiritual fashion. But when we are made into the very image and likeness of the glorified body of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to have minds that will be able to take in the spiritual realities that our minds are not able to take in today. So don't accept anything as a final word. There may be something that can be revealed through the scriptures in a wonderful way as time goes on. All right, then it says, we understand in verse 5, that these elect ones were now linked up with one who was both elect and precious. Those are two titles of our Lord Jesus Christ in relation to the people of Israel. And together, as a prototype of things yet to come, they were a nation of priests. But of course, they never got to be that in reality because God brought to an end his dealings with the nation of Israel when the nation as a whole, as a nation, kept on rejecting 
the overtures of the Holy Spirit during the whole book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 28, 28, we find that God turned his back upon Israel to deal exclusively with the Gentile world, especially, but with the world at large in a general sense. Now when you get to verses 6 to 8, I quoted there, a, uh, or rather there are three quotations there, uh, concerning the fact that all of this was according to prophecy. You and I don't have a thing today that's according to prophecy. I hope you realize that. We find that whatever our blessings are, we're hid from these prophets. The Lord Jesus Christ never revealed a single solitary detail because his dealings were with Israel and it was not yet time for him to reveal details about the church, the body of Christ. That would not come until Israel had rejected or was in the course of rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. And that would be, shall we say, in chapters 10, 11, and 12 of the book of Acts where the risen Christ was revealing to Paul the gospel of the mystery and truths concerning that mystery. Now what Christ was to the believing Israel, he was according to prophecy, not to mystery. Remember that. That's a good thing to remember. There is a big difference between that which is come to pass or has come to pass through prophecy and that which has come to us by way of mystery. All things that belong to us come by way of mystery, not associated with, with their prophecy. So when prophecy is quoted in the word of God, such as in 1 Peter, then you realize that Peter is dealing with Jews and not with the Gentile body of Christ. God's offer originally was recorded, you know, in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. But because of non-compliance to the conditions that God set down for Israel to become that nation of priests, we find that the tribe of Levi was chosen to be the tribe of priesthoods, and of, of the priesthood, and out from that tribe we had the Levites who were the workers and so on, and the whole tribe of Levi was given to the nation of Israel in order that the other tribes might have an approach unto God, and that teaches you that priesthood is for the benefit of approach. Now there is no need for us <coughs> as members of the body of Christ to create an approach for anyone. If all believers are priests and the main occupation of a priest is to create access or to give access, for whom are we giving that access or creating that access? We can't be priests for an unconverted person because an unconverted person cannot worship God. They cannot pray to God. They, cannot, they have nothing to offer to God, no matter how religious they are. So we cannot act in the, uh, for their benefit. And uh, we have an access not created by the occupation of a priesthood or by the office of a priesthood, but by the virtue of the fact that it's through the cross and through the blood of the cross that we enjoy that particular priest, uh, that nearness. But here we see emerging a kingdom of priests as Israel will yet be in the future according to Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 6. Now would you... Look at that, please. We have looked at that verse many times in the past. Isaiah 61 and 6, it says, But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. And if you want the context, the context will tell you he's talking about the people of Israel, and it's a word of prophecy. And up until the time of Isaiah's writing this particular scripture, this had never come to pass. And may I say, it's never come to pass as yet, because the people of Israel refused to be those priests. 
But in the coming day, it says, But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in the glory, in their glory, shall ye boast yourselves. And we find that as far as Israel is concerned, they will always be Jews in the millennium. And the saved Gentiles will always be Gentiles in the millennium. But the Gentiles will never have an equal access with the Jews. They will be priests. And because the Gentiles don't, uh, don't ex uh, uh, enjoy equal access with the Jews, the Jews are going to be priests so that they can take the sacrifices of the Gentiles and make them presentable unto God. It's nothing else but a Jewish program all over again. And that's for the future. That's not for us. Now when we get to verse 9, it says, But we are, but ye are a chosen generation. I'm sorry I said we. I know that Christendom wants to put a we in there instead of a ye. And I didn't do it on purpose in order to get this dig in. But it says ye are. And the Apostle Peter is talking to these Hebrews. He's not talking to Gentiles. But he says ye are a gener chosen generation. Now that word generation uh, simply means a certain... Uh, uh, tribe, a certain group of people, and uh, that's what they were, they were a special group of people, and uh, a race is the word that I'm looking for, they were a special race, we hear of the Jewish race, the chosen people, and uh, he is telling them, ye are a chosen race, that's exactly what they were, a race, different than the colored race, or different than the, the brown race, or different than the yellow race, and so on, they were a chosen race, a royal priesthood. And holy nation, and that's not what we are. We are not a nation. Now, nowhere in the Bible would it suggest that the body of Christ is a nation. But he's writing to a people who is a nation. A peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, because it sounds like this is what God has done for us, taking us out of darkness into his marvelous light, that it can only be Gentiles who are saved by the grace of God. And that's what we get in, get in all of our uh, works uh, that are given to us by the preachers and Bible teachers of these times today, representing Christendom. We find that verse 9 does not express God's view of the body church, but of Israel as a type. A prototype of things to come. That's This is what they're going to be in the future. When God is finished with us, a body, he is going to create a nation again. And he's going to make a royal priesthood, a believing nation, a believing race out of the people of Israel. <coughs> but that's going to be <coughs> during the uh, millennium. It is Israel who is the nation spoken of because in Matthew chapter 21 verse 42, let's go back to that please. Matthew chapter 21 and verse uh, 42. I hate to tell you where Christendom is off so, so uh, much because it just seems as though I'm harping on that all the time. But they're off uh, on so many things that you can't help but uh, show uh, what poor teaching you can expect from Christendom at, uh, today even among those who call themselves fundamentalists. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 42, Jesus said unto them, Did ye never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected, the same as become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now that's his scripture quoted in 1 Peter chapter 2. Then he goes on and says, Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a what? A nation. 
Not a body, but a nation. And that's this nation that he's talking about. It's the people of Israel. And that was a little nation among the remnant of Israel in the period of the book of Acts that uh, the apostle Peter is talking to and talking about. And it says, And given to a nation, bringing forth fruits, the fruits thereof, and whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Now, you can see what the nation is. Now, we have in Christendom today, by well-known Bible teachers anywhere around here, you listen to, uh, to some of your uh, radio preachers or some of your television preachers, this is what they believe, that that nation is not Israel, that nation is the church. And that's a false uh, conclusion of scriptures like that. All right, then. We find that it is Israel that was called out of darkness to him who came to be the light of the world. You remember that in the chapters of the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus said to Israel, and only to Israel, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Then he said to them, while ye have light, believe in the light that ye might become the children of light. And he's talking to Israel and only Israel. He came to be a light to them. And that's exactly what you read about the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke at the time the Lord Jesus Christ became Christ incarnate. Now our Lord Jesus Christ will come again as the light. If Israel needed light 2,000 years ago when he came as the Emmanuel, God with us, we find that when he comes again, they'll be in a worse condition than they ever were when he first came to them. If they needed light then, they will surely need light in the future. Let's go back to Isaiah again, chapter 6. May I remind you that if you take Isaiah chapter 60 to 66, you will have lovely chapters on the future of the nation of Israel. And it will help you a lot in some of these uh, uh, letters, uh, epistles that are given to us from those belonging to the circumcision. Isaiah chapter 60 at verses 1 to 3. It says, Arise, shine, for thy light is come. And the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For, for behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall rise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee. And the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. So you can see, light is going to come to the people of Israel. It will come in the form of the same person who came to them according to the Gospel of John 2,000 years ago. And they will be so enlightened by that personal light of the Lord Jesus Christ that they will be a light to the Gentiles and Gentiles will come to the uh, rising of their light. And what a wonderful thing that is. The glory that's going to... Uh, come upon the people of Israel in the coming day by virtue of a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And that light will attract the Gentiles to them. Now that light is not in the world today. The light was in the world 2,000 years ago. It was not in the world during the book of Acts. He was at the Father's right hand. There was no attraction to that light by Gentiles because the nation of Israel rejected that light and they were in the dark. And therefore, no Gentiles were drawn and attracted uh, by way of that uh, message of the kingdom. So we find that in verses 19 and 20, I hope you didn't turn over from Isaiah 60, but in Isaiah 60, chapter 9, uh, verses uh, 19 and 20, it says, The sun shall be no more thy light by day, neither for brightness shall the moon give thee light, give light unto thee, but the Lord shall be unto thee an everlasting light, and thy God... Uh, thy glory. 
The sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. So that's where the light comes in in relation to the people of Israel. But we also find that uh, in the book of Hosea, will you turn to that please? The book of Hosea, just before the book of Joel. We have another statement, and while you're looking for that, I want to remind you of a statement we have in 1 Peter chapter 2. And there it says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation of peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people. Now this is where all of our bright, well-intentioned, and well-educated fundamentalists will tell you that these are Gentiles, because only of Gentiles could these words ever be said. And what are these words which in time past were not a people but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy? Now there are places where it tells you that the Gentiles were not a people of God, but there are places where it also tells you that the people of Israel were not to be the people of God, but would become the people of God with further dealings on God's part with them. And we have to go according to the context. We can't jump on 1 Peter chapter 2 and say this is a church, the body of Christ. We are a holy priesthood, a holy nation, and so on, when we are not. We are not the subject of that verse. When you go to the book of Hosea chapter 1 and verse 10, you ought to have this underlined in your Bible. It says, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea. When it says, and yet, it means the time will come in the future when they will be numerous they will be born again as a nation, you might say, and they are going to produce children throughout the millennium. And uh, they will be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. That's a marvelous prophecy. You can take that prophecy and bring it right over into Second Peter, First Peter chapter two and verse ten, where it says, "Which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy." Those are Gentile. Those are Jews. They are in Gentiles. The devil would get me to say Gentiles instead of a Jew, wouldn't he? I've got that to battle every time I stand on the platform. Whenever a man wants to preach the word rightly divided, you'd be surprised how tongue-twisting he can become, how forgetful he can become. And I appreciate your prayers whenever I stand here because the older I get, the more I need your prayers. Don't forget that. All right. Not only do we have that in Hosea chapter 1 verse 10, but let's look at chapter 2 and verses 23 uh, yes, 2 verse 23. There it says, And I will sow her, God is likened to a farmer there, a husbandman, and I will sow her, that is Israel, unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that hath not obtained mercy, and I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Do I have to say any more to clear the air? That 1 Peter chapter 2 is not concerning the Gentile uh, people of, of God in this dispensation. It has nothing to do with the dispensation of grace. 
Why is it then that we will listen and we will read and we will encourage people and even pay for their broadcasts who will broadcast this sort of thing which is so contrary to the word of God and far from the word of truth? Now they can be corrected if they will but you try to get people interested in correction. You can't. Lately we had some people here that were visitors and you talked to the host of the family that had them as visitors and say, did they say anything after they left as far as the message is concerned? They'll say, not a word. They play mum, they'll talk about anything and everything else. But they'll never say, no, that was rather strange that we heard tonight. Is that what you believe? You know, and get up a conversation. But they steer away from it so that you don't have to try to explain yourself lest they might be tempted to believe the thing. You the best thing you can do is to push the truth. You don't have many years before you. I may have more years than most of you people here tonight. Who knows? And we cannot bank on the fact that we have one week to live. But in that week we can stand for the truth. And if the truth isn't worth standing for, why don't you forget it? Why don't you discourage people from believing it? And if this is what you think is truth, you better stand for it and make a stand before the world, before the Christian as well. They need to listen to it. Well, our time is up. It's nearly going any farther because from verse 11 we would start something new entirely and it's 10 minutes up and I think our time is pretty well gone. I hope you got something out of this. I've labored over two messages now in order to make sure that you understand why some people can be called Christians and why other people can be called, called Christians. Two out of two different callings, but the reason... The very fact that the callings were two different callings, there is a different meaning to the word Christian. And I hope you will understand that these things that the Apostle Peter is saying in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, does not pertain to the church, the body of Christ. And will you please spend some time in trying to convince some of your family the truth of these things? Help them to see it. Because they will get into it if they ever see the truth. They will say, the Bible has become a new book to me. May the Lord bless his word to each one of us tonight.